0: Welcome to Well Connected with Dr. Joe Kavidar, a podcast series from Partners Connected Health. I'm your host, Joe Kavidar. Join me for interesting and thought-provoking conversations with the leaders, disruptors, and innovators who are redefining the future of technology-enabled health and wellness. We have a unique and exciting opportunity as we focus on the upcoming 2019 Connected Health Conference here in Boston. Partners Connected Health is honored to be the organizing partner for this world-class event, and I'm proud to serve as program chair. For this season of Well Connected, we're excited to bring you a special collection of episodes highlighting this year's keynote speakers. Each episode will not only feature a stimulating conversation with a noted thought leader, but will provide a sneak preview into their up and coming keynote presentation as well. Today's guest on our podcast is Margaret Laws, president and CEO of HopeLab, a social innovation nonprofit focused on designing science-based technologies to improve the health and well-being of teens and young adults. Margaret is passionate about working with digital natives, the millennials, the Gen Z generation born after 1981, which now make up more than half of the U.S. population. Technology is central in these young people's lives, we all know that, and their lifestyles, expectations, and perspectives are changing the landscape of digital health. Hope Lab works with young people to co-create interventions grounded in behavioral science and human-centered design, partnering with innovators, researchers, and design firms in health, education, and and nonprofit sectors, HopeLab distributes and scales these solutions aimed to achieve the broadest social impact. In September, Nurse Family Partnership, a national program serving first-time moms and their children living in poverty, awarded HopeLab the Robert F. Hull Award for exceptional impact for the creation of a mobile app named GoalMama. GoalMama is a HIPAA compliant app and accompanying nurse dashboard, the first mobile app of its kind, developed exclusively for nurse family partnership mothers. Another Hope Lab innovation, Vivabot, a chatbot for young cancer survivors, was also recognized by Fast Company's 2019 innovation by design awards in health and wellness. Prior to Hope Lab, Margaret spent 17 years at the California Healthcare Foundation in a number of roles, and that's where we first met. Uh, There, her roles included Director of Public Financing and Policy and Director of Innovations for the Underserved Program. She founded the Health Innovation Fund, a mission-focused fund investing in healthcare technology and service companies that improve access and lower cost of healthcare. Margaret holds a bachelor's degree in English literature from Princeton University and a master's degree in public policy from Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. She's a lecturer at the Stanford School of Business and also serves on the boards of Health Leads and Project Glimmer. Additionally, Margaret is an advisor to Acumen America, United States of Care, and a number of early stage health services and technology companies. I'm thrilled that Margaret will be a keynoter at our 2019 Connected Health Conference here in Boston, hosted by HIMSS, along with Partners Connected Health, October 16th through the 18th. I hope you can join us this year for our conference, where the theme will be Designing for Healthy Habits and Better Outcomes. Today, we're going to get a preview of what Margaret has to say on that subject. And Margaret, I'm really thrilled to welcome you to the podcast, Well Connected.
1: Thank you, Joe. Really happy to be here.
0: So much of your work focuses on creating partnerships, bringing together stakeholders from government, nonprofit, and private sector organizations to improve the health and well-being of kids and young adults, with a particular emphasis on underserved populations. Tell us about the power of these partnerships, if you can, and share with us maybe an example or two of an especially meaningful collaboration you've created.
1: Terrific. You know, it's it's a very interesting challenge that we have at Hope Lab because we have a set of capabilities and resources. We have behavioral scientists, we have designers, and we have staff who are really experienced in managing tech products. But what we don't have at Hope Lab is, is we don't actually have tech developers and we don't have a client base. So unlike uh, partners or another health system or an education system, we actually don't have a group of young people we directly serve. And so when we think about partnership development, the two big areas uh, where we're um, we're engaging and we're bringing uh, partners into the projects we're working on are in technology. So we wanna actually be working with cutting edge tech developers. And we just uh, have come to the conclusion that rather than try to build a team inside our very small organization, up to speed on all the advances in technology, A better strategy for us is to partner with um, exactly the right tech development firm for the project that we're doing. So that's on the tech side. On the partner distribution partner, development partner side, one of the things we've realized is that we need, I would say, I call it a sandbox sometimes to develop in. And so we develop very, very closely with young people. Um, We bring them in in the ideation stage, in the project development stage, in the design and in the testing of everything we work on. And so we need a base, um, a user base, a a client base, a patient base of young people to work with us to develop so that we make sure that whatever products we work on really incorporate and reflect the voice and the perspectives of young people. And then from a distribution perspective, and everybody who's at this conference and everybody in healthcare understands how challenging distribution is. Um, you can have the best product in the world. You can have a product that does incredibly well in testing in the lab, and it can be very, very difficult and often very expensive to distribute. So we really look for partners who have uh, powerful distribution networks. So uh, you asked for an example. And I'll give an example that actually includes both of those. You kicked off with it in the intro. Uh, we've been doing a, a partnership with Nurse Family Partnership. Um, many people will be familiar with the organization. They pair high-risk, young, first-time moms with a nurse for about two, two two and a half years from when their young woman is before 28 weeks of pregnancy till the baby's two. And that nurse visits the mom in the home and does really – all sorts of support activities with her from really basic social support to teaching her um, about the health effects of various things that are going on to helping her learn to care for and um, attend to the development of the child. So with Nurse Family Partnership, there's a base of about 50,000 families a year. Um, And that distribution base for us was really important as we began to develop because we were able to use that base of both nurses and moms as co-developers and they're the they're the customer base for the distribution of the product. We also in that pro- in that project needed a technology partner. There we brought in a company called Ayogo. Um, Ayogo has a uh, be a platform on which they develop white label tools, white label digital tools for behavior change. And they for us were a really well-aligned partner that had very very up-to-date and informed by lots of other um, engagements a product for us to begin to build on
0: that's a that's an excellent example and, and I can tell just from listening to you it's uh, it's all part of a, a, a broad strategy that you use which is I think so useful for our, for our listeners to, to hear how you're how you're viewing it as a leader of the organization so well done the tagline for Hope Lab, inspired by hope, realized by science, adds the elements of behavioral science and user-centered design combined with those partnerships to deliver on that hope, which ties nicely to the theme of this year's Connected Health Conference, Designing for Healthy Habits and Better Outcomes. We're really happy, Margaret, that you agreed to join us as one of our featured keynote speakers on the opening day. Can you give the audience a preview of your talk, which is how digital natives are changing digital health?
1: Sure. Um, without scooping my talk, let's see. What do I what do I want to say? Um, you know, one of the things we think about a lot at Hope Lab, and I certainly think a lot about as a as you pointed out, you know, 20 plus year vet, maybe more than that, veteran of, of healthcare and specifically healthcare services and technology, is that we're we're working with digital natives and digital natives. Uh, really approach the world in a different way than those of us who are not you and I both in this audience who are not digital they just do um, they 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 don't think about these digital technologies or this smartphone I'm holding up in my hand as something other it really is very much a part of who they are and who they interact or how they interact with the world and so when we think about how the healthcare system, is going to use technology to serve young people. Um, It gets me thinking a lot about all the work that I've done in in healthcare and healthcare technology in the nascent early years, particularly consumer-facing technology, where a big part of what we worried about was, if we build this thing, how can we get people to use it? People don't want, doctors and nurses don't want to use it, patients don't want to use it. Now we're facing something very different, which is we have young people who are Um, really engaged in everything they do in their life with digital technology and they are going to use it. And I think now the question is, can the health system develop things that young people are going to want to use?
0: Yeah, no, that's... uh, I I was thinking about this uh, uh, in preparing for for this interview and I wonder... So I'm going to digress for a minute just to ask you... This demographic, we all have seen some of the f- f- uh, phenomena you, you you just alluded to that this it's not other, and I, I very much like that descriptor. Whereas for you and I, it, it certainly no matter how I think uh, engaged we become with these technologies, we can always remember a world where mm-hmm. we didn't have them. So, and and in healthcare delivery, um, what I. I'm thinking about various future scenarios right now. One, one that I worry about is that as healthcare deliverers, we become stubborn in our insistence that the only way you can get care is by coming to visit us in a physical location uh, and that there is this demographic who expects something completely different. Have you gotten a sense of two things in thinking about this? When is a tipping point where, where we simply can't dig in our heels and serve this demographic? Because after all, now probably their touches to the healthcare system are much less than, say, someone who is uh, 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 more of an analog consumer. So when is that tipping point? And will they make choices on healthcare providers who are more who present themselves more digitally? Uh, uh, and will that make a difference to those of us who provide care?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question. And it's, you know, first of all, you know, kudos to you for beginning to see this and work on it so many years ago and sort of persist in the face of a, a pretty difficult implementation landscape for technology and healthcare. care. I, what I would say is, you know, I think we're getting close to that <clears throat> tipping point. You know, we've got Gen Z is now the biggest generation. Uh, We've got a lot of consumers who have expectations that are very different from what the current system offers. So, I'll give some statistics about what percentage of, of patients or people in the healthcare system have a primary care provider. And I think about that as. Do they relate to, do people relate to the notion of a primary care provider and of the system that we have created around primary care providers? Um, And I think we're at a point where most of the people in the system don't actually relate to the system that way anymore. It's not the way they expect to interact with it. Um, To your point, their expectation is not to have to go in. Um, And so I think we're at a point right now where we're starting to see that shift. Uh, The question that often comes up when I talk to people about this, and I I totally respect this question and I don't know the answer to it, is we're we're talking about people at a stage in their life and in their health, kind of their health span, where they're generally not very sick. Right. Um, And so be optimizing or emphasizing convenience over personal connection or whatever Value an in-person visit brings uh, is actually very logical, and I think the question that often comes up is, hey, you know, when these, when this group of people gets older and sicker, which unfortunately they're going to because right. the, yeah. the trends aren't looking very good, um, will they still behave the same way? Um, and I, I think we don't know the answer to that, but we do know that they will, and believe at least I believe that they'll behave in a way. That's consistent with the way they're living the other aspects of their lives. And so I think no matter what, there will be a very strong expectation for a system that provides a lot more convenience and service orientation than our current system does. Um, and I think we're starting to see models emerge that are responding to that. And yeah. some of them are purely digital models, and many of them our hybrid digital in-person models that that kind of flip the current paradigm where mm-hmm. the assumption is digital unless it absolutely has to be in person instead of the assumption being it's in person unless somebody opts for digital
0: oh i like that and i agree with you and i see that that happening it, it's uh it's it's fun to watch it evolve i i uh, completely agree well, well we'll certainly look forward to hearing more about that and and uh just a couple of weeks when, when I see you in person at the conference.
1: Looking forward to it.
0: The research team at Hope Labs brings expertise in psychology, neuroscience, social work and public health to advance the innovation process and create a clear and measurable impact on the health and well-being of teens and young adults. Can you describe the process you follow in product development?
1: Sure. And if it's okay, I think I'm going to digress for a minute um, into a little bit of the history of the founding of Hope Lab, because I think it's relevant to this question. Um, so Hope Lab was founded by, uh, and is continues to be funded by Pierre and Pam Omidyar, founders of eBay. And it was initially founded with the idea of creating a digital intervention, a game actually, to help young people with cancer and to help address a problem, which was that despite the fact that they're overseen and supervised and cared for by by both parents and providers healthcare providers young people with cancer were not and are not taking all their chemo and antibiotic meds and so Hope lab was really started to think about Would is there a way that a technology in this case in Pam's idea? It was a video game could help with this and I think like a lot of people developing digital health tools initially the idea was well, if you, can make, if you can make it engaging enough for young people to understand what's going on inside their bodies, then they'll take their medication, right? If you can help, if you can make it interesting enough for them to learn about why what's going on and why it's important for them to take this pill, they'll take it. It turns out that was not the case. <laughs> it turns out that there was a much, as you know, right, you laugh, but there was a much deeper psychological relationship between taking the pill, being a kid with cancer, um, and what relationship that medication and the identity of being a cancer patient or being a person with cancer had. And so what's interesting, what we try to do at Hope Lab and started with that project and carry forward is to bring a behavior change and behavioral science perspective to the work that we do and to really deeply understand what's going on psychologically and and sometimes from a neuroscience perspective with a person as it relates to the health behavior we're trying to impact. And then human-centered design, as you know, engages deeply at the human level to try to understand um, those behaviors and needs and desires and to design in relation to those. And so our process at Hope Lab, you know, we've got a team of behavioral scientists and we have a team of designers and they work together in a very iterative process to develop hypotheses and uh, an impact pathway, a, an idea about what we're, what be, what health behavior we're trying to impact, what psychology informs that health behavior, and how technology might relate to that psychology, and the design team is out very actively interviewing, observing, and working with young people to understand, you know, how do they articulate what's going on with them, how do they think about it, how do they experience it in their day-to-day life. And then those two teams work iteratively through a design and development process, testing all along the way. And the projects that we do culminate, or don't culminate, they they have a a spot where we typically do some sort of a controlled trial um, in all the products that we do. We do that before they go out to market. But but up until that point, there's a lot of iterative work. And we actually have a process. We've got information about it up on our website about how we integrate the research stream and the design stream throughout the ideation uh, design and development process.
0: It's fascinating. And and, uh, I remember uh, hearing from your – well, it's your team now. When I I originally met the team, you weren't – in your position and uh i remember those days when people thought that games were the answer mm-hmm. um i also it was chuck the reason i was chuckling was because i have a phrase that i sometimes trot out that uh, education does not equal inspiration
1: right and, perfect uh, that is it, well said
0: and uh, I well, you know, it's interesting because we as healthcare providers, I think, need to hear that every day because we think, oh wait, if I just tell you all about your heart, you'll understand why you need to cut your cholesterol intake, and it's just not the way it works, as you say. So congratulations for moving that ball forward. We need as many people working on that as possible because at the end of the day, I I do think well. Last I checked, about 70% of our costs are uh, in this country anywhere are lifestyle related and uh, changing lifestyles is a big deal and it involves inspiration uh, more than education, so well done. Thank you. You may have answered this, but let me, let me float this one and see where we, where we get with it. Your uh, behavioral science collaborations explore fascinating topics and generate actionable insights. You know, a few examples, improving your understanding of how social networks on and offline can be leveraged to promote uh, positive health behaviors in youth, a project to develop an algorithm for an app that can more quickly and efficiently identify which real-world social behaviors contribute to biological and psychological resilience, a new and improved social media based measurement of loneliness, and several programs studying if, quote, acts of kindness, end quote, can improve health. It's really fascinating work. Can you tell us just a little bit more about how you choose research topics and how you go about uh, pulling these things together?
1: Sure. Uh, thanks for bringing that up. It's a really exciting part of the work that we do. And it's, it's the place where we try, we, we think of it as our translational science portfolio. So we're really trying to work with leading researchers around the country and around the world who are are doing cutting edge work in the areas that are really relevant to and impacting the work that we're doing in the lab. And you gave a bunch of examples of those things. I think right now there's a a really strong interest in, you know, now that we've got incredible power in natural language processing and machine learning, data science, a really, really strong interest in trying to understand what we can learn from all of this digital data that's available, um, and again, in our case, about young people and generated by young people. And so, you know, as we do the projects that we do in the lab, as we work on trying to develop technology interventions and scale them, really understanding how the power of data science, the power of the information that's out there in the world that people are generating. People are telling us what they believe, what they think. The, that data is all out there. And, you know, it ha- until now, it, we really haven't been able to harvest that and, and use it. And so I think one of the big areas that we're looking at and places we're spending time are in how that uh, those new Ways of uh, analyzing and interpreting data can be brought back in through a translational science perspective to the work that we do. Um, There's some other work that we're really excited about kicking off, um, I think I'm scooping us, but kicking off next summer, which is bringing together data scientists and social scientists. So, again, thinking about questions in social science and expertise in that realm, and the expertise in data science, and how we can bring people with those two deep areas of expertise together to work on problems of uh, health, well-being, and behavior of teens and young adults. Um, One other area I think you talked about a little bit that I think plays into the work we do and and some of the work that we we try to help others with is to really understand how you talked about it in the Acts of Kindness paper, but how po- how beneficial and how positive to psychological and emotional well-being doing positive mm-hmm. things for others is, and again, how do we build something like that into the tools and technologies that we develop? And you know, that's a pretty hot topic right now, which is how can we all collectively as a society help the online experience that people, especially young people, are having be a more positive emotional experience so that's an area that's really top of mind for
0: us Yeah, as, as it should be it's uh, it's fascinating you mentioned earlier that the organization is funded uh, uh, by a philanthropic what sounds like anyway a philanthropic initiative do you actually generate revenue do you sell products tell us a little bit more about how it works as a business
1: sure it's a great question and it's a little well, complicated, but I'll, I'll just go there and you can see what you want to do with it. So, <clears throat> so we are uh, funded by the family office the, of Pierre and Pam Omidyar. So we're, we're technically an operating foundation. Um, we have a staff of about 30 people. And the money that we get from uh, the Omidyar group funds the operations of the lab. A lot of the work that we do, so I gave you an example earlier of the Nurse Family Partnership Project. It, it's very difficult, as you know, to have a project like that happen without other support. And so when we go in to do a project, one of the things that Lisa, I I try to be very attentive to is, is there sufficient financial support in the project to get the work done? Because we're not a grant-making foundation. We're not able to provide grants to the partner organizations, generally speaking, that we work with. So um, what we're thinking about um, is how can we help generate or bring in additional financial support uh, when we need to. So generally speaking, that's the way that that Hope Lab is funded. We're not, raise, we're not out raising philanthropic money to fund our day-to-day operations. But we may be partnering or participating with partners to look for funding to help the larger project as it moves along. Um, Our work, think of our work, actually, it was interesting. Uh, David Olds from Nurse Family Partnership said to me one day, so it's interesting, you're a philanthropy, but instead of giving us a grant, you actually bring capabilities and expertise that we don't have and help us upskill and learn. um, And you do that in place of what would otherwise be a grant. I think it's a good way to describe it. So it's an an in-kind expertise partnership.
0: Uh huh. I On like sal- that.
1: Yeah. On the sales side, um, we we do engage we do engage in uh, selling. In fact, you know, we we sold one of our earlier products, Samsy, to WellTalk. We we sold um, Vivabot to Grit um, Digital Health, or not Grit Digital Health, but to a company called Grit G R Y T, which is a digital uh, organization that serves young people with cancer. What we are generally doing when we're making those sales is we are trying to get the solution into the home where it will have the most chance of being financially viable and sustainable and reach as many people as possible. So our goal is not to generate income or generate revenues. Our goal is really to generate the impact that the solution can have on young people and on, you know, hopefully on organizations in the field as well. Um, so we're, we're always operating with the perspective of, of that goal. But you, you've heard me say this before, you know, people say this, you know, no, no margin, no mission. (laughs) If it's not financially viable and successful, it's not going to generate the impact that we want to see it generate. So a big piece of what we think about when we put projects together is how this tool intervention product will be viable, sustainable out in the market uh, when it's been through its testing and, and went through the work in the lab.
0: That's, uh, it may be complex, but what uh, explained with great clarity and, and uh, we, we, we appreciate it. I'm gonna wrap up, uh, I've asked all of my guests uh, for this particular uh, season to, to uh, expound a bit on the future. Uh, and I like to cap it. I like to say something, and when I say future, I'm talking about something in the next three to 10 years. I don't, uh, I don't care much for the 25-year-out uh, hand-waving because anything will go. But what do you see coming up in the marketplace? What are the trends you see? What, uh, uh, what challenges should we expect in terms of digital health and wearable technologies, and um, what can we learn from, from what you're seeing?
1: Well, I think the the sort of boring, um, the boring run of the mill one, of course, is, and I think it's particularly relevant to work that has to do with teens and young adults, is that we still have a system that's that's trying to shift, um, you know, from episodic payment to value-based care. And I think for all of the preventive and upstream work that the health and well-being of young people Really is demanding and is kind of crying out for right now. That's a challenge, um, and it's something that I think you know I'm acutely aware of and think a lot about. Which is if if we if we see these incredibly troubling trends in mental well-being, mental health, and and physical health and well-being of young people, what can we be doing now um, that actually can help us uh, move towards or or at least mitigate some of the some of the challenges that that's going to present us downstream, and how do we think about moving towards a system where some of that uh, is funded and and paid for uh, in in what we do in healthcare? So I think there's there's a piece of it that is really the work on policy and payment, um, specifically focused on health and well-being of young people, and and trying to to you know push back some of the trends that we're seeing. In terms of digital technology wearables, um, I think that the the thing I'm most excited about is working with a generation where these digital technologies really are the way that they interact with the world and thinking about how we can harvest the efficiencies of being able to do a lot of what we do in health and well-being, monitoring, advising, um, prevention work, remotely and digitally in a way that uh, I think can both be really efficacious but can also fit with the lifestyle of of people we're working with. And so I think using, um, I don't know a better way to describe it than to say, you know, using this tool that young people have attached to the end of their (laughs) arms all the time um, as a way to really reach them with relevant, timely, important information that can help them maintain better health. So I think it's a little bit of the vision of sort of the consumer at the center. And I wonder whether we, we won't in the next three to five years uh, be able to use technologies to really uh, shift towards or design a system that starts with the consumer and kind of starts with this vision. That, you know, we have a lot of pictures of it of sort of a young person holding this phone in their hand or this computer and really thinking about how to get positive health and well-being tools and messages to them through this, through this, uh, this thing they're carrying around with them all the time.
0: Well, I, I, I think we can, we're starting to see that happening as, as you alluded to. So, uh, I, I, uh, completely agree with, with, with all of that. And, uh, I know you'll help create it. So we look forward to watching that happen. Uh, Margaret, thanks for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure to chat with you. I'm really excited to see you in person in a couple of weeks and uh, to participate in our conference.
1: Thanks for the opportunity. Really looking forward to seeing you and to uh, to really coming and learning from, from everyone who's presenting in a couple of weeks.
0: Great. Thanks for listening to Well Connected with Dr. Joe Kavita. A special thanks from me personally to Tony McMillan, our engineer, and Lynn Josephson, our senior marketing manager, for putting this series together. If you enjoyed our show and want to know more, visit our website at partners.org forward slash connected health, all one word. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at connected health. For more episodes of our series, search Partners Connected Health on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to podcasts.